This morning, I would like for us as we pray for um, uh, our time together as we study God's Word, um, uh, I'd like for us to pray for uh, um, a couple of things. Um, Tim's eye is still needing prayer for healing. He says it might be a little better. He's still got two additional shots that need to be placed in his eye for the treatment to be able to help him maybe see again out of that left eye. So let's pray for Tim. Also, we can pray for uh, Ed and Sherry. Um, uh, Sherry struggles with uh, dementia, and she's having a hard time, and the family's having a hard time. That's Scott and Robin's mom and dad. And so if we'll pray for them. They're not here today because of some difficulties that, that they're encountering with her illness. And then also, we've been praying for the different churches in our community um, uh, this week. On our, on our schedules of praying for the churches, we're going to pray for um, St. Michael's Catholic Church and Father Jesse Perez. Um, he comes to the Ministerial Alliance meetings. I've had opportunity to meet him. Um, and um, I don't know if you guys know, but I know a lot of people who go to the St. Michael's Church, and I'd like to pray for them as well. So if you guys would bow your head together, and we'll pray for these things. Um, Lord, Thank you for the beautiful weather outside, the sunshine and the cool fall air. And Lord, we know that there's um, more uh, moisture coming in the forecast, and we ask God that you would bless us with that. We've been in, um, without moisture for a while, and even the little bit that we had a couple weeks ago was, was awesome, but we need more, Lord, so please provide for that. And um, we want to pray for Tim, ask God that you would continue to do a healing work in his eye that the shots and the medications that are in them would, would do, God, what they're supposed to do, and he would be restored back to health. We also pray for our brother Ed and our sister Sherry and the struggles that Scott and Robin and they together as a family are facing as a result of um, Sherry's disease. And Lord, we pray for comfort for them today. We pray for peace in their hearts and minds as they know, God, and trust that you're in charge of all this. And I pray, God, that you would meet their needs and give them the path that they can walk down, Lord. And for um, our brothers and sisters at St. Michael's Catholic Church here in town, God, we want to lift them up to you. Um, we thank you for them. We thank you, God, for their love for you. Uh, we're thankful, God, that they um, know and love Jesus as well. We pray, God, that um, Father Jesse would teach the truth, Lord, that he would know um, what your word says and that he would give it to those who come to hear it. And we pray, God, that you would do a mighty work in that congregation of drawing out um, your love through these people's lives there. And I pray that as well for our own fellowship, God, that the love that you've shown us, that you've poured into our hearts and into our minds, God, that that would be drawn out through the work of your Holy Spirit into the lives of our brothers and sisters who we sit next to this morning and into the lives of the world, people in the world around us. And God, that we would be known for our love for you and our love for one another. And as we study your word this morning, God, and close out the book of Exodus, we thank you for the journey that we've had studying through it. We're thankful for the, the truths that you've made known to us and um, um, coming to have a deeper knowledge and understanding of what your word says, but more importantly, God, of the awesome things that you've done, the awesome things that you still promise to do, and God, that we know you better as a result. So Lord, as we study through the rest of this, I pray you'd make yourself known, that you'd be glorified, and that you would be um, 
that you would be encouraging us, Lord, and convicting us and sanctifying us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we studied through chapter 35 last week, what we were reading about was we were reading about the preparations that took place before the construction of the tabernacle started. And if you had gone to your home group, that might have been one of the things that you guys were, were, were digesting as you were talking and sharing and about what that chapter is about. And probably the simplest way, again, of looking at it is just these were the final preparations that were taking place before the work, before the construction of the tabernacle started. And the very first preparation that was made is when Moses had gathered the children of Israel, the congregation, it says, together in order to remind them of God's command regarding the Sabbath day of rest. And, and God was saying, okay, before you start, remember, let's keep our priorities straight right? And, and, and we need that reminder, too, when we go about our day, when we go about ministry, that we got to keep God in the place that he deserves. And in doing so, Moses was reminding God's people that even though they were entering into this very important and holy work of, of constructing the tabernacle, that they needed that they must keep the Sabbath day holy. They could not forget that. Considering God has established it, God had established it as a holy day for them, he says, so that they would remain dependent on God um, throughout that process of construction um, of the tabernacle and so that they might be strengthened for the work that um, as they took their rest in him. So the first act of preparation which highlighted the people's need to rely upon God for the construction of the tabernacle, it was ultimately an important way of life and a spiritual truth that applies to all of God's people, to us today. Yet in preparing people for the task and God preparing his people for the task of building the tabernacle, he also knew, just like he knows in our own lives when he calls us into something, he knew that in addition to the spiritual needs that they had, he knew that they had these material needs as well, many material needs that would have to be provided for. So in part of in preparing, God, God set forth a plan for that. And he also commanded Moses then to take this offering that would be given to him, to the Lord, for the materials that would be needed for the work that was to be done. And like we talked about last week, God set this offering up to be a free will offering. It wasn't this, okay, everybody's going to do this, and everybody's going to bring a certain amount, and it wasn't that at all. God just say, t- said, take an offering, and, and, and it would be a free, wa- free will offering. And, and as we read and studied through, we saw that only those whose hearts were stirred is said, and, and, and whose spirit was willing brought their offering for the construction of the tabernacle. And so we have to assume that there was some who didn't, some who missed out on the blessing of giving to see the tabernacle constructed. But there were, as we'll see, more than enough people whose hearts were, were stirred and their spirits were willing to offer up what was needed. And, and we were told that those who gave, they, just, they gave what they could. And in this, we see where God guided, God provided for, for the work that was to be done. Now, the final step of preparation that took place before the work began was for Moses to identify two men. Remember? Bezalel and Ahaliab, whom God had called by name to lead and to teach others who would participate in the actual um, construction of the tabernacle, uh, of its furnishings, and of, of course, the priestly garments that, that would all be needed for the work to be done. And in doing so, Moses made it known that in addition to choosing these men for the holy task, God had also filled them, more importantly, with his spirit. 
And God was covering all the bases, is what we see as he prepares. In our home group, one of the things that we talked about is, is this was, an, this, if, if, it's kind of like Noah building an ark, right? It's like, if God just came to you one day and said, okay, I want you to do this, this thing, and he does that for us a lot, and, and we look at the thing that God gives us, and it seems insurmountable at times. And where we don't have the abilities, we don't have the, the energy, we don't have the resources to do it. And I'm sure as Moses came down the mountain with all these detailed instructions and gave them to the people and said, this is what they're going to do. There, there had to have been some were like, yeah, how are we going to do this? This is too great for us. And it was too great for them. But God in preparing was telling them and showing them, I'm meeting all the needs. I'm going to take care of this. I'm gonna, you're gonna find your strength and your rest in me. You're gonna find your provision for the things that you would need from me. And not only that, I'm gonna give you the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge for every one of the different types of trades that will be needed to complete the many different aspects of the work. God said, I'm gonna give you the gifts to do it. Doesn't that sound familiar? That God, too, gifts us for the appointed works that he calls us to walk in. And with these preparations, God's people were then sent out with a reminder, a, a, a reminder that we see over and over and over again. And as here at the beginning of chapter 36, once again, it's this reminder to do the work that they've been called to do in the way that the Lord had commanded it. To do the work that they'd been called to do in the way that the Lord had commanded it. In other words, simply put, God's saying, do it my way, not your way. And, and I say that because that's how God speaks to me. Sean, don't forget, do it my way, not your way. Are you sure, God? I think I got this one. No, <laughs> do it my way. And, and God reminded the people over and over and over again. And so in chapter 36, we begin with this reminder, this warning. Uh, uh, and it said in verse 1, And Bezalel and Eliab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, they shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. There it is. Then verse 2, then Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and, and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. So just like those who gave, those who were answering the call to do the work, it was because God had stirred that up in them. And they received, so they came willingly, they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. That's awesome. And then in verse 4 it says, All the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each one from the work he was doing. I think verse 4 is significant, and I'll, I'll point that out as we go through this. But it says, And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman nor any do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary and the people were restrained from bringing for why they for the material they had was sufficient for the work to be done indeed too much you know one of the commentaries i was reading i just want to point this out that that um a guy kind of cynically said that was probably the last time in all of the history of the church or with God's people that they had to be restrained from giving. And you know, that's not true. 
You know, there's been more than one time when we as a fellowship, as we as leaders in the church have made a need known, whether it's with one of our missionaries or with one of the things here that God's doing in our ministries at this church, where, where, where we've just made a need known and let it be, and there's, there's, then later we've had to come and say, oh, stop giving. We've had more than enough for what God is doing here. And man, I'm always blessed, and I'm always very careful because of that, because I know that God stirs your guys' hearts. You guys are giving people. And, um, and um, God, you're sensitive to that. But in light of what we read here of this command to build the tabernacle according to all that the Lord had commanded, and, 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 and I don't know if you see it this way, but I'm looking at this, and, and I'm reading it, and I'm going... Okay, it starts off with this command to do all the things that the Lord had commanded, and then we read as they began to do the work and receive the materials and, and go forth, we receive that there's a challenge. We, we hear that there's this challenge that they're faced with to begin with, and I find it interesting that the first challenge in keeping this command to do everything according to the way that the Lord had commanded it, that this first challenge came as a result of the people giving too much. As a result of the people giving more than enough for the work that needed to be done. Remember, God had given Moses exact dimensions. We've read this and we go, man, why is this is such a laborious recording of what God expected? I mean, exact dimensions, exact weights, and exact amounts for everything that needed to be built, everything that, all the metals that needed to be forged, and everyone in of the fabrics and of the threads that needed to be sewn. And, 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 and this, in doing so, left no question about how much of each kind of material would be needed for each one of the tasks. God said, this amount, this size, this amount of fabric, over and over and over again. And so they had a detailed account of the materials that would be needed, right? For the overtell task. So when Moses in verse 3, it says here, gave the initial offering that had been received from the people, Bezalel and Aholiab, they would have known what was and what was not still needed at that point. This was a highly organized thing that was taking place. It wasn't like they just took wagons full of the stuff and just said, okay, guys, go get what you need. Each thing was been distributed to the right artisan to do the craft that they needed to do for the work that needed to be done. And I believe they had a materials checklist saying, okay, we need this, we need this, we need this. We don't need this anymore. And so people came, it says, and continued to make their offerings daily. There would have been an accounting for it in order for them to know when they had enough. And they, they did so until the craftsmen who were doing the work stopped what they're doing, came to Moses, and, and, and told him that the people had brought more than enough. We got enough. The work wasn't done. They were still in the middle of it, but they knew. In light of this, we see that the craftsmen were ultimately keeping this command that God reminded them of as they began the work. They were keeping this command to build everything exactly as the Lord had commanded even though they could have been tempted to let the people continue to give, keep on giving, give till it hurts, right? <laughs> to, keep, to have them keep on giving and continue to receive the extra materials in order that the tabernacle, maybe there were other reasons that they could do this as we are all human beings and know what our nature is like, but at, the, at least from a godly point of view, they could have gone, wow, we got so much more. Maybe we can make this tabernacle bigger and better. Even 
on a greater scale than the original plans. We'll just, now that we got all these other resources, we'll just blow these walls out here a little bit more and we'll add some stuff here and maybe we'll make another room over there. You know, I, I think about this in, like in, in light of people with church building projects. They're the worst. <laughs> you know? It's like they have a budget and, and like it just keeps growing. And it's like bigger is not always better. More is not always better. What's best is God's way, God's plans. And I find it interesting that they were challenged to honor God in keeping his command by having been given more than what they need. But they did not allow for even the generosity of others to move them out of God's will and God's plans for the construction of the tabernacle. And guys, I think that this has much application for our lives today because the fact of the matter is most of us and probably all of us have been given more than we need. Amen? So think about that. Why have you been given more than you need? In America, it's a sad thing when we think about it because God's given us as Americans more than we need and yet we have more national debt, more personal debt than any other country in the world. And in one sense, we've said, God, thanks for the abundance of what you've provided for us, but it's not enough. We're gonna go borrow more so that we can have more because what you've provided is not enough. And I think that's one way of just considering it. And this is not to say, guys, hear me, this is not to say that, that having more than we need is, is a bad thing because everything that has been given to us is from God. What do you have that you've not first received from him? Nothing. It's all been given to us from him. However, we need to be careful that the blessings of God are not moving us out of his will. Right? We need to, we need to be careful that the blessings that God gives us are not moving, out of, out of, moving us out of his will or, or causing us to turn our backs on the plans that he has for our lives. And even though Proverbs chapter 30, I love this proverb. It's a prayer of the, song, of, the pro, of, of the one who wrote the proverb. He says in verse 30, verses 8 through 9, he says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. But guys, the only real hope that we have in honoring God with whatever we have been given is to remember this. And this is what it all boils down to for the children of Israel and for us. There's no condemnation in this. This is just a reminder for us to go that we've been called to be stewards over what God has given us. We've been called to be stewards over what God has given us and that he has a specific plan and purpose for everything that he's entrusted to us. And because so much of the New Testament scriptures teach us that God will one day call us to give an account for everything that he's, he's given to us and, 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 and to an account for what we've done with what he given, gives given to us, we need to do everything in accordance to what the Lord has commanded. We need to pray over what we've been given and go, God, what do you want me for, to do with this? Who is this for? And then be willing as stewards to honor God with the things that he's, he's put into our possessions. Now, I mentioned this briefly last week, um, and it's told to us once again in verse 2, if you want to look here. Um, and, 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 and we should take note of the fact that in providing for this great task of the building of the tabernacle, God also put in the hearts of those who came to do the work the wisdom to do it, right? 
He also put into the hearts the wisdom to do it. And according to verse 4, we see that the work was organized as each one had a specific work that they were doing. In other words, God, God had gifted many different people with his wisdom for all the different tasks and together they were able, and together they were able, and I'll say that one more time, and together, together they were able to complete what God had pointed them to do. Together. And what God did here gives us a picture of what he does for us who make up his church today. Together. We do what God's called us to do. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 writes about this, saying that we as a church, he says, we are individual members. We are all individual members of one body. And each of us has a specific gift, a specific job appointed to us by God. It says that we have been equipped by God as he sees fit for the greater work that he's called us to do together. And just like it took many different people with many different gifts to do the work of building the tabernacle, so too does it take many different people with many different gifts to do the work that God has called us, the church, to do. Remember, we're individual members who make up one complete body. Some of us are ears. Some of us are toes. Some of us are arms. And the Bible even says, Paul says, in some of us are parts of the body that are inward that even can't be seen. Hearts and lungs and, and kidneys and livers and all those things. And he says, he says, not one is greater than the other. And he says, matter of fact, the ones that are unseen often are the ones that are needed most. And you know what, guys? Truthfully, we have a whole group of people in this church who, who serve and go unseen. And without them, this wouldn't happen on Sunday mornings. We wouldn't be able to reach and minister to the lost. But we do it together. And, and we're, there's a need for us to do together. In order really for the church to function as God has intended. And so it was with the Hebrew people working together, gifted by God each given a specific work to do. And in the following verses of the chapter of the book, uh, uh, well, really, the following, the following verses and the following chapters of the rest of this book account for this, doing it together in great detail for us. And what is accounted in the, in the, in the book of Exodus, what the rest of the book of Exodus, what is accounted here for us has already been accounted for in detail, when God gave Moses the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle when he was on Mount Sinai. And because we already studied through these individual things in great detail, I'm going to skim over the rest of them this morning and, and highlight a few things as we make our way through it. And so with that being said, in the remaining verses of this chapter, um, the construction of the inner tent or the tabernacle of meeting is being accounted for. And Josh, if you want to put that first picture up. There it is. There's a diagram of what we're talking about overall. You can leave that up, Josh, until I put the next one up. And so if you look in the, next, in the remaining verses, or at least in the following verses of this chapter, in verses 8 through 19, you can, you can glaze over it. I'm not going to read it. But in verses 8 through 19, we're told, first of all, about the four curtains. And you can see it there in the diagram that would make up the, the tabernacle of meeting, the inner tent there, that would make up its roof. And these curtains, we know, and we read here again, were made by connecting several panels of fabric together with gold clasps. 
And, and, and there were four layers. And when we read and study about these curtains, when we read and study about these curtains back in, in chapter 26, when Moses was told about them by God, we were told that there was an inner one, and only the inner one could be seen from the inside of the holy place, whether it was the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it was made up of fine linen, and it had designs of cherubim that were woven into them. Now, the second curtain that would cover the tabernacle there, the, the, the inner tent of meeting, was made of goat's hair. The third was made of ram skin that was dyed red, and the outer one was made of badger skins. And these verses account the making of them. A little further on in verses 20 through 34, we're also told about the 48 acacia uh, wood boards. And you can pull up that next, that next picture there, Josh, please. When we're told, we read about the 48 acacia wood boards, which were ultimately overlaid with gold, the, their tenons, which were those rings for the bars to go through, so the tenons and their bars uh, for connecting them together, which were also gold and overlaid were gold, were also um, uh, made and accounted of, of the making of them in verses 20 through 34, as well as the silver sockets, the two silver sockets for each one of the 48 boards that were set that they were set in to keep the boards up off the ground. They were also constructed at this time for the three outer walls of the holy tent of meeting. You can see the front of it there is got a veil on it or, 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 a, or a door into it. And, and, and lastly, in verses 35 through 37, you can look inside the, that, that um, diagram, that picture there, and you see another veil um, dividing the, 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 that tent of meeting into two places, and that's called the veil of separation. And there were two pillars that it would hang on. In verses 35 through 37, it accounts the veil of separation as well as the tabernacle door at the very front with its five pillars that that door or veil would hang on. And these things were also constructed at this time and accounted for in the remaining verses of chapter 36. And um, I want to I point out that um, the, the, the veil of separation was also made of fine linen. It was also made of woven, um, or, or a woven fine linen and designs of cherubim were in it, and it divided the two rooms, uh, the tent into two rooms. And behind that veil of separation, you guys know this, I think, is where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. And this screen, which became the door for the tabernacle on the front there, was the only way into the meeting place. There was not an emergency fire exit out of the back, like what we have to have in today's um, construction. There was, there was no way other way in and no other way out. And in light of all of this, the, the two different diagrams and the things that we read about here in regards to the construction of the tabernacle of meeting, the inner tent of the court, inside the court of the tabernacle, we should consider Hebrews chapter 8, and we did so when we read through these things over several weeks and studied them out a while ago. But in Hebrews chapter 8, remember, it tells us that this holy building, you can go back to the first one, Josh, this holy building with all the other things that would be placed in it, it was just an earthly copy, it says, of God's uh, earthly copy um, of heaven and an earthly copy of, of God's throne room here on earth. And because of this, and, and, and because all of this, the, the, the tent of meeting was, was hidden beneath the three outer curtains, the three layers that went over the, the, the fine linen, we see that this 
that this earthly heaven, if you will, remained hidden. It was, it was an exclusive place. It remained hidden to everyone except the priest who entered in through its door. In the light of this, we're given a picture of how heaven is also an exclusive place. Heaven is an exclusive place that can only be seen by God's priest who are willing to come in through its door. And when we consider entering through the only door that gives us access into heaven, I have to remember the words of Jesus who said in John chapter 10, verse 9, you guys know, he said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. And so the door into heaven is, is Jesus Christ. To that exclusive place, only way in is through Jesus And in regards to this issue of heaven being an exclusive place where only priests can enter, we also need to remember that this requirement has been fulfilled for us by Christ as well. Considering 1 Peter 2, verse 9 tells us that Jesus is precious to us who believe in him because he has made us, it says, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that we might declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. With that, if you guys look over now to chapter 37, we're going to continue on with this construction process. And with the tabernacle of meeting being finished, we see that in this next chapter that all the holy items that would go inside of the tabernacle of meeting were next on the list to be built. And in the first nine verses, in verses one through nine, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat, which was a gold lid that was set on top of this box, these items were the first to be made. And this is because the Ark of the Covenant with its solid gold lid, they were the single most important thing in the tent of meeting as well as in the whole of the tabernacle. Everything centered around the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Everything. And being a picture of God's throne, um, the Ark of the Covenant, um, this is the place where God would manifest his presence to his people. This is one of the reasons why it was so important. So the Ark and the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was constructed. Then verses 10 through 16, another piece of, of uh, furniture that was in the tabernacle was the table of showbread. And the people, uh, the children of Israel, built this according to the way that God had commanded. And we know that it was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with pure gold. And its purpose was to hold 12 loaves of bread that were changed out every Sabbath, once a week. And there were several things that are, that are, are cool about this. I don't have time to go into all the details. But one of the things is that the bread was eaten by the priest and it was eaten in the holy place, in the tent of meeting. It was never to come out once it had come in. And the 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The, 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 the table of showbread is also known as the table of presence. And because of this, the 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the symbolism there was that the children of Israel um, were always present before God in the holy place, before the holy of most holies. And it was a perpetual reminder for the priests who ministered to God that they were servants As they were ministering to God, they were to serve the 12 tribes of Israel. 11, if if you consider that they they were the tribe of Levi, but you get it. Furthermore, these loaves were were a testimony 
to God's people. They were a testimony to God's people, reminding them that they were constantly before the presence of God. And being that it was bread in God's presence also spoke to the fact that God was this provider. He provided for them. And in his presence, God saw what they did and he knew what they needed. And all of these things transcends into our own lives, spiritually speaking. And then the God, the God of the children of Israel is the same God for us. We're before his presence. And because so, he knows what we need. He knows what we do. And in addition to the table of showbread, there was also a gold lampstand, is what we're told, and the altar of incense. And both of these things, these were the additional two items that would, would, um, that would be needed for the holy place. They needed to be built. And in verses 17 through 28 of chapter 37, this is the record of their construction. And first of all, this lampstand... Uh, you've seen it, it was the menorah, it contained seven oil burning lamps. And the awesome thing about this, the miraculous thing about this, is it was hammered out of one lump of gold. A hammered work from one lump of gold, and, and when you take the, 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 the when, you, when you convert the, um, the weights that are given here into what we might be more familiar with, is that it equated to 75 pounds of pure gold. And there is a replica of it in Israel, in the old city of Jerusalem, at the Temple Institute. It's a replica, and, um, um, but it's amazing. Uh, when we go there, you'll get to see it. And I had a picture of it when we were studying about it um, several weeks ago. Furthermore, when we consider this, this lampstand with its seven oil-burning lamps that came up from the, the different arms, we know that it was the only source of light inside of this, this tabernacle meeting, inside the tent that was inside the courtyard there. The only light. And without this light, the priests could not perform their daily duties. And, and again, it's a symbolic importance or a symbolic uh, representation for us that the work that we're called to do requires light. And Christ, who is the light of the world, he says, is placed his light inside of us. And he's told us to let that light shine forth. And without the light, the priests couldn't perform their daily duties, which included the offering of the fragrant, fragrant incense on the altar of incense that's recorded here in verses 17 through 28 of chapter 37, at least the construction of it. And um, that, that, that we know that the incense was offered every morning and every evening, we're told, as a perpetual sacrifice to the Lord, to this, this altar of incense, this golden altar of incense. And the golden lampstand, uh, it was um, on the left-hand side as you walked in to the, to the tabernacle. On the right-hand side would be the showbread. On the left-hand side would be the, um, the menorah or the, the golden Lampstand, and then right in front of the veil of separation, opposite of the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was behind the veil of separation, um, was this where the altar of incense was placed. In other words, right before God. And the rising up of the smoke from this incense, which was offered before the mercy seat, was a picture, as it was a perpetual offering. And it was kept going in the morning and in the evening. It was a perpetual offering before the Lord. And it's a picture of, of, of prayers, it tells us in the Psalms and in other passages in the book of Leviticus, of, of our prayers rising up to God, of the people's prayers rising up to God. And it reminds us that God who hears our prayers calls us to be a people who pray, right? 
constantly when? Pray without ceasing, we're told. Every morning, every evening is a perpetual sacrifice to the Lord. Prayer. And back in chapter 30, where we first read about the altar of incense, God told Moses that the, in regards to this altar, that the, 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 the incense, incense was the only thing to ever be offered on it. You could not offer up an animal sacrifice on it. Only incense was to be offered up on this altar. And there was a, a specific recipe that was given for the, the making of the incense that was to be put on it. And here at the end of this chapter, in verse 29, we're told about the, the, the making of the pure incense of, 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 from sweet spices, and it was the work, it says, of the perfumer. In light of this, it's important for us to know that in Leviticus, guys, when we consider this altar, we can't overlook this fact that in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12, God said that there was also a special fire. And um, later on, we'll see that there was a high priest named Eli, and he had two sons, and it says they offered up strange fire on this altar, and God took them out. And there was a specific kind of incense and a specific kind of fire that was to be used on this altar, and we're told that the, the fire was to be taken from the brazen altar, which we'll read about and study about here in just a second, as, as, as uh, uh, from the brazen altar of the burnt offering, which was outside of the temple sanctuary, of the tent sanctuary. And this golden altar of incense was never to be used for any other offering, without, with, with, never with any other incense or, or never with any other fire. However, Back in chapter 30, when we first read about it, when God told Moses, this is how you're to build it, and now we see in being built, um, God told Moses also that once a year, every year, on the Day of Atonement, when the sacrifice was made for the peoples, for the nation's sin, when the, when the animal sacrifice was made by the high priest for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement, that the high priest was to go into the tabernacle, and before he went into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, he was to take blood from the sin offering for the sin offering of atonement and place it upon this altar. And it said it was done yearly in order to cleanse it. Now, obviously, it wasn't talking about like, you know, it was dirty from dust and all those things. It was symbolic. It's a symbolic cleansing because, you know, you wipe blood on something, it's going to make it more dirty, right? But there was this symbolic thing, and therefore, the altar of incense, God said this. He said this. He said, it shall be called most holy to the Lord. And when we take these things and connect all the dots, we're given a really cool picture. And because of this, Guys, we see as it's before God and the prayers are offered up and the, and the incense is coming up as an offering, as a symbolic thing of prayer. And God says it needs to be cleansed once a year and it's most holy to him. What we see in all of this is that God's primary desire when it comes to the Hebrew people and the law and the, and the offerings and the sacrifices and the construction of the, the tabernacle and everything that was done there, God's primary desire for his people was for them to be holy. That's what we see through all of this. In other words, simply going through the rituals that were required by the law, including the burning of the incense on the altar of incense, was never enough to make the Hebrew people right with God. God wanted their hearts. 
and their lives to be right with him and not just the religious procedures that we read about that's tied to each one of these things with all of its rules and regulations of the law. He did not just want all of those things to be done right. He wanted them to be right in their hearts and in their lives with him. And this is why the blood of the atonement sacrifices which cleansed the altar was put on the altar. There had to be a purification, a symbolic purification of it. Likewise, God desires for our hearts to be right. That's the point. God also desires for our hearts to be right with him. He doesn't desire for us to be good Christians. You know, he doesn't look at us and go, okay, looks like you went to church today, you read your Bible, you told someone about me, and oh, you didn't get that other last thing done, you didn't... You know, whatever it is, God doesn't desire for us to have this checklist of what good Christians do. Does God want us to be faithful to him in our deeds and in our actions? Yes. But he wants mostly and primarily our hearts to be right with him, our lives to be right with him, for us to live holy lives. Yet, this, and it's not just about checking off a list. And, and this it's, it's, it's is not possible, guys. This is what we're being told here as we see the blood put upon the altar of incense is that it's not possible for us to be right with God either apart from the cleansing blood of our atonement sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who became our atoning sacrifice for it's Jesus' death on the cross that makes us right with God. No person on the planet Earth, whoever has been or whoever will come after, can be right with God apart from the atonement, sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ. That makes us right with God. And it's Jesus' death on the cross that cleanses us of our sins and cleanses us of our unrighteousness. The Bible tells us that Christ took our sin upon himself. He said, hey, give that to me. And he gave to us his righteousness. And when the Apostle Paul writes about that, he goes, it blows my mind. It's a mind-blowing thing when you begin to think about that. But it's an awesome thing, and it's a true thing. And when we read on in chapter 38, as we go on, we see additional things being constructed for the tabernacle, for the, 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 the whole tabernacle. And in chapter 38, we see the focus shift from what was built um, all the things that were built for the inner tent of meeting. Josh, you can pull that one back up with the golden boards. You know, that was the inner tent of meeting. So this is what's done, the furnishings, the, the, the veils, the doors, everything that went inside of it's done. And then when we get to chapter 38, and I'll go back to the other picture, we see the rest of the tabernacle and the items that would stand in its courtyard um, in front of this tent of meeting being constructed, as well as... Um, in chapter 38 and verses 21 through 30, we give a detailed inventory for us in verses 21 through 30 that accounts the amount of the precious materials used in the construction. And we go, well, why would they do that? Why would they just give us this detailed account? Why would God give us this detailed account of all of the materials that were used? And, you know, this much of this, that much of that, this length of board, this much fabric. Why would they, why would they do that? Because it's a reconciling. Right? God started off, said, this is how much you're going to need. Then the people gave, and they said, we got what we need. And then we get done to the end of it in this chapter, and, and when the construction is done, and it says, this is what we've used. And it's an issue of stewardship altogether that points us forward in our own lives that there is coming a day. Over and over again, Christ spoke about the different parables in regards to stewardship. 
What has God called us to? What has he given us and what have we done with it? Now, in regards to what was in the courtyard of the tabernacle, chapter 38 tells us about the making of the altar of burnt offering and the bronze laver, both of which were instrumental in the offerings that were to be made to God. And when a person came to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifice, if you go back to the other picture, Josh, when they came, when they were walking up to, um, um, well, in David's day, when it was, the tabernacle was reconstructed with the ark there in Jerusalem, we'll just take that time frame for the sake of, of discussion, when, when, when a person would come up into Jerusalem, the city on the hill, the first thing they saw was the white linen fence. That's re-described as far as the construction of it in verses 9 through 20 here in chapter 38. And these walls that you see here, these outer walls, they were, I'm not going to give you all the cubit dimensions again. I'll just, I'll just convert them for you. They were seven and a half feet tall. You couldn't see in from the outside. Seven and a half feet tall. And, 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 and they completely surrounded, as you can see there, the inner tent of meaning. And it made this rectangular court. And the measurements of it were 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And this is the place where the priest ministered inside that courtyard where you see all those instruments there, all those different items that, that are, are, were needed. And, and now the holy tent of meeting, as the picture describes, it stood in the far west corner. The backside of the tabernacle always faced west. And, and at the east end, as you can see there, the front of it, at the front of it was a 35-foot wide entrance. And, and it's described here in verses 13 through 19. As, as, as being built, as being constructed, sewn together, and, uh, and the pillars, of course, that it hung on. But they're described in verses 13 through 19, and this was the door into the enclosure, the overall tabernacle. So think about it. When a person came, if it was you and I, when we would come, if we came, to offer up our sacrifices at the tabernacle, we would enter in through this front gate. It was called the gate of the courts. And immediately we would be met by priest. Priest who, who stood there at the entrance in order to carefully examine whatever the offering or the sacrifice that we had brought was. They, if it was an animal sacrifice, they would, they, would, they would check to see if it was without defect to make sure that it was acceptable for the, for the sacrifice and um, without any defect. And then the worshiper, uh, the one coming to, to make the offering, according to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, you guys know this, they would then put their hand on the animal's head in order to identify with the animal that was being offered while the priest killed the animal. And um, you know, I, we spent time going into detail on that. I don't want to do that again. You can, you can go back and, and, and listen to the, the, the previous teachings on it. Anyway, the animal would then be prepared in accordance to the law. There was a specific procedure for each different sacrifice. And then the bronze laver, which is also spoken about in this chapter in regards to the sacrifice, the bronze altar of sacrifice, the bronze laver was important in the sacrificial washing for the priests as well as for the different items that were used in the sacrifice as well as, as different things with the animal. The bronze laver contained all the water that was needed there inside the court for the work that, that was to be done. And um, 
that would be prepared in accordance with the law, and the priest would then offer it up on the bronze altar according to the regulations that are given for us in the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. And if you've not read through that at any given point, do that now. Springboard off of it. Well, not right now, but in today and the next week. Go read the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus and kind of connect the dots in your own mind. It's, it's interesting to see what was, what was mentioned here. But just like there, guys, just like there was only one way to enter into the holy tent of meeting, right, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the priest could only enter, there's only one way, if you notice, to enter into the court of the tabernacle. One way. One way in. And... Um, when we consider, well, I guess I should point out, not only just one way into the court of the tabernacle, but really there's only one way to get to this brazen altar of God where the sacrifices were made. And um, I point that out because when we consider how God repeatedly commanded Moses, I want to go back to how we, be, we started in verse chapter 36 with that, with that warning, that reminder to build it in accordance to the way that God said. Because when we consider all of this um, in light of God's repeated commands to Moses to make everything in an exact accordance to the pattern that he, God, had given to him, we should see, guys, that when God puts up a fence, because that's what the outer walls were, they were a fence. When God puts up a fence and when God assigns the way in, Nobody has the authority to question it or change it. And this is never truer in regards to the door of salvation. And this is why Jesus, who claimed in John chapter 9, chapter 10 to be in verse 9, to be the only door and the only way, God also said, we know that Jesus also said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And these words explain to us why the Apostle Peter would then say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there any other salvation, or, or, or nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a fence being erected here, there's a door being made. And in today's society, where so many people like to think that every way is acceptable to God, and Curtis just had the awesome opportunity of having this similar kind of message brought on Friday to the youth at the bridge. But and the, the, we live in this society, in this culture now, where people like to think that, that, that every way is acceptable to God, right? This fundamental truth in light of this about Jesus being the only way to God, it cannot be overstated since the belief that there are many different ways to God is nothing more than a lie that leads people to death. It keeps them out of the presence of God. It keeps them away from the brazen altar where the sacrifice is made. And this altar that is accessed through this one entrance into the tabernacle, just real briefly, it was literally as a, as a, as a barbecue pit. I don't tell you. It was a hollow box. It had a grate on it. Um, it measured seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high. Um, and you could offer up many large animals on it. And um, it was made of acacia wood and it, rather than being covered with gold, was covered with bronze. And like silver, as we've talked about this before, it has a spiritual representation. 
Silver has a spiritual representation. Bronze also has a spiritual representation. And according to the law and the sacrificial system, bronze is always identified with judgment. It's always identified with judgment. And in passages of Scripture like Numbers chapter 21 and Numbers chapter, or in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you can go and look. There's great illustrations of this in both of those chapters. So unlike the golden altar of incense that sat in the holy place before the veil of separation, this bronze altar was literally a place of judgment, a place of bloodshed, and a place of death. In fact, the Hebrew word that is used for altar literally means killing place. An altar was a killing place. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the killing place, there's no forgiveness of sins. In light of this, it's important to point out that the, the, this position and, and the very purpose of the brazen altar, alongside all the other construction of the tabernacle that we've been reading about, made it clear to anyone who entered in through the door that led into the court of the tabernacle that the only way into the presence of God began at the brazen altar. You couldn't get into the holy of the holies or the most holy place, even if you were qualified, unless you went to the brazen altar, to the killing place, where innocent Victims died. Where innocent victims died as a sacrifice for guilty sinners. And because of this, we should see how the brazen altar points us forward. Guys, how can we miss it? You, you can't miss it. It points us forward to the cross. To the cross of Calvary where Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent sacrifice died for the guilty sinners of this world for me and for you so that we might go on through the veil that went as the door into the tabernacle of meeting, to where the showbread is, to the presence of God, to where the light is, to where the altar of, of incense is, where the prayers are lifted up, and ultimately where we then can go into the veil of separation, to the holy of the most holies, where we find the mercy seat of God and the very presence of God, all of that because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, Josh, you can put up the next picture with the priest, the garments of the priest. Which one do you got there? Not that one, the other one. Okay, so there's a picture of the high priest and uh, the garments that he would have front and back, and a picture of the, uh, the other priestly garments for just the other well, no, the word is ordinary priest. <laughs> They're not, they weren't ordinary, but all the other priests, only the high priest had the, 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 the particular garments that set him apart. And in chapter 39, if you look here, this is the account of the, of the making of these garments and the different things. The holy garments for the priest. Um, in verses 1 through 7, you have the construction of the ephod, which is the, um, uh, there you go. And then the breastplate, um, and then in verses, that breastplate is in verses 8 through 21. And then in verses 22 through 31, you have the other priestly garments, including the turban, the holy turban for the high priest, which had upon it a gold plate that said, most holy to the Lord. Remember that phrase already used in regards to the altar of incense, and now it's on the head of the high priest, most holy to the Lord. 
And then in verses 32 through 43 of chapter um, 39, we, we see this statement made. The work was finished. The work was finished. And it tells us in those verses that it had been done in accordance to all that the Lord had commanded. And then they brought everything that had been made to Moses. I can see it. This is a big ceremony in my mind. I witness it. Um, I don't know if it really happened this way, but in Sean's mind, it happened this way. And, and so Moses is standing there, and, and there's this big celebration, and they bring each of these items, the priestly garments, the, 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 the furnishings of the courtyard, all of the boards for the tabernacle of meeting, all the, the furnishings inside of the tabernacle meeting, the veil, the outer walls, the, the, the curtains, all of it's brought to Moses, who according to verse 43 of chapter 39, you can look there, it says that he looked at it and basically he signed off declaring that it had been done as the Lord had commanded and Moses blessed them. And Moses blessed them. We're gonna wrap it up with chapter 40. <laughs> the worship team wants to come up. And in chapter 40, what we read is about the tabernacle being erected. All the, the, the pieces, all the parts, and all the different things were, were put together in the center of the camp. Because what God tells his people, if you keep my commands, if you honor me, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. Among you, in the midst of you. And in the very center of the camp is where the tabernacle was constructed, is where everything was arranged. And it says on the first day of the month, it was done. And you know what this tells us in regards to the time frame? It's been a year since the children of Israel were delivered now out of Egypt. It took them a short time to get to Mount Sinai. They've spent almost, uh, the majority of the time, almost a year now at the, at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, um, meeting with God, making this covenant with God, reestablishing this covenant with God, sinning against God, um, uh, and, then, and then honoring God with the construction of the tabernacle and the way that God had done it, and then eventually arranging it. And it was on the first day of the first month that this took place, uh, one year later after coming out of, of Egypt. And this, this amazing year in the history, it's an, it's an amazing year, historically speaking, for the, for the, the, the Hebrew people. And, and in doing so, in, in this year's worth of time, they could count the great works of God. And I think they could also measure their own spiritual growth. And as we look at the Hebrew people, as we've seen their, their journey over this year, we, we go, yeah, they've come a long ways. They had some ups and downs, and they're in a good spot right now. And guys, it's fair. It's right for us. And I'm going to close with us this. By the way, just a little side note, what is the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar? Anyone? Nisan? Nisan? Yeah? Um, and and um, it's also in conjunction with the... Passover feast. And, and, and it's, again, a reminder for them of what God had done year to year to year to year perpetually. And here they have the tabernacle constructed. This huge celebration would have been taking place. But in all of this, I think that the timing of it was, 
was intentional, that, that God in the timing of it allowed it to all play out like this because the passing of time in our own lives, guys, allows for us to see how far we've come with God when we reflect back. Where were you a year ago? What were you doing a year ago? What kind of person were you a year ago? What sin were you struggling with a year ago? You know, hopefully all of us, because of the work that God's done in us and the work that God's done through us, can look back at a year ago. What trials or struggles were you going through a year ago? Where scripture tells us over and over again, this too shall pass, right? You know, maybe you're in one now and you're going, I can't wait for that to this too shall pass time. But, you know, using the passing of time to see how far we've come with God or what God has brought us through is a good thing. And it's, it should, it should, we should use that as, a, as we seek the Holy Spirit to go, God, show me. Because Christians, we should, we should be growing. We should be continuing on. We should be persevering. We should be running the race. We should be able to look back at what we've gone through, pressing forward, laying aside those things behind, but pressing forward to the goal, to the prize. And the children of Israel, they'll press forward. Where are they going now? Where are they going? They're going to the promised land. The promised land isn't a picture, a spiritual picture of heaven, but it is a picture of our life in Christ. And there's battles to be fought, and there's giants to be fought, but the victory has been given to us through Jesus, just like it has with the children of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you, God, for the time that we've had together over these last several months to to study your word together, to be reminded of these things that you did in and through and for your people, how you, Yahweh, the great I am, made yourself known and promised God to choose a people to make yourself known to the rest of the world, to bless the rest of the world, and you've done that for us, and we're thankful, we're grateful. Lord, we love you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, just want to remind you that there will be people up front, one on each side and one in the middle here for you to be able to pray, pray with. And maybe as we're thinking about these things and you're reflecting back on where you've been and where God's taken you, that you'd like to come forward and, 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 and receive prayer. Do that uh, this morning or for any other thing. So we